Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Evan Gottesman. And I am Michael Coplow. And we are here today to talk about something that our listeners probably have never heard of, probably haven't been thinking about specifically in the past week or so, which is the One State Solution and the Peter Beinart series of essays that preempted the current conversation around it. Not a whole lot of talk around that, right? Did Peter Beinart write something? I, I must have missed it. I think I sent you an email with the link to that. Oh, yeah, that sounds, that sounds familiar. Yeah, I haven't, haven't really heard much talk about it, though. So this is the story that has rocked the American Jewish world, although not really the Israeli world, and that's part of the story. We're talking, of course, about uh, Peter Beinart's two essays on the idea of a single democratic state solution for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But there's also a broader ecosystem of ideas around this that came before Beinart's essay and other recent opinions and people coming out with statements, including former Palestinian Prime Minister Salam Fayyad. Um, and there's been a whole counter response to this. So, you know, we should break down for our listeners what exactly uh, Beinart was arguing for in his article. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Evan, Certainly, this is not the first defense of uh, a single binational state that we've seen. What I found interesting and maybe new about Beinart's article and his wider argument is that he is explicitly making it from a liberal Zionist perspective. And so he isn't saying that because two states no longer seems possible, that therefore American Jews should drop their affinity for Zionism or end their Zionist commitments. What he's arguing is that liberal Zionism, which has historically been at the forefront of the two-state movement, should now pivot to call for equality between Israelis and Palestinians rather than separation, and that doing so and keeping a Jewish homeland rather than a Jewish state should be the new project for liberal Zionism. And I think that's actually what makes his argument here interesting and, and unique and um, and different from some of the arguments we've seen in the past for one state. Definitely. And I think here we should also take a step back. And for our listeners who may not actually be familiar with who Peter Beinart is, because I don't want to assume that um, he's a columnist, he's uh, now um, at Jewish Currents, a left-wing Jewish publication, but he's previously been at the Atlantic, New Republic, also. Uh, yeah, he was. He was certainly uh, the editor in chief of New Republic at, at one point, uh, and I think that he's now the editor in chief of, of Jewish Currents as well. Correct. He's been in the past an outspoken advocate for the two-state solution and kind of the uh, banner carrier for a certain school of liberal Zionist thought. So for him to come out and say this carries a different weight than other people who have never associated themselves with uh, the Zionist label or people who are outside the Jewish community. And certainly this is a school of thought that is more popular among Palestinians than it is with Jews, both in the diaspora and in Israel. Um, although interestingly, it doesn't have quite the, the critical mass of support that maybe it would need to get off the ground uh, among Palestinians who actually live in the West Bank and Gaza, and certainly not among uh, those living in Israel, among Arab citizens of Israel. 
Um, so yeah, I think who Beinart is and the way he framed his argument really, really makes this uh, more significant. Of course, he brings in the early Zionist thinkers, some of whom, like Ahad Ha'am, who's probably the most prominent among them, who weren't uh, statists or, or didn't see a sovereign state as being necessary. You know, this struck me, though, as kind of an argument pulled from the past. And I think Yehuda Kurtzer articulated that especially well in, in his response to Beinart, where he compared this appeal to something that is, you know, now 70, 80 years uh, far gone as a practicable idea to uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt, the, the revolt against the Romans in uh, ancient Judea uh, in the in the second century, which was kind of an appeal to a sort of uh, the sort of nationalism and, and thought that brought about the first Jewish revolt and the destruction of the temple and everything that uh, came with that 70 years earlier. So it might have been something that was an appealing idea or, or a good idea even in a different time. But now it's kind of a something that's more of an anachronism or a historical novelty than anything else. Right. And to just put that into further context, Beinart's argument, he, he made a, uh, an appeal to Jewish history where he took the example of Yavna, where after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and a number of uh, his colleagues and disciples established uh, a yeshiva, in, for, for lack of a better term, uh, in Yavne in order to transition Judaism from being uh, a temple-centric religion to uh, basically re- the rabbinic Judaism that, 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 we, that we know and are familiar with of the last 2,000 years, recognizing the changed circumstances. And uh, Beinart's argument was that um, shifting to a call for one state with equality for Israelis and Palestinians is the equivalent of Yavne. And, and I think you had a Kurtzer's argument, um, which, which I thought was, was very good uh, in this respect, was that, the, as you point out, the, the real analogy is to the Bar Kokhba rebellion, because uh, Yavne recognized this huge change in circumstances um, that, was not, that, was not, uh, that was not going to um, be restored, to the status quo, and Bar Kokhba came along and said, "No, let's try to let's try to restore the status the old the old status quo that's gone forever." And uh, Yehuda is arguing that uh, in this case, the state of Israel is the new reality, and so to give up on it after after only seven decades is really more equivalent to Bar Kokhba as opposed to uh, what Beinart is arguing, which is saying let's recognize that the world has changed entirely, uh, and that the state of Israel as a as a Jewish state. Is, is no longer possible if it's going to be democratic. Right. And I think the Yavne example also is a good transition into some of the appeals and the, uh, the appeal of this argument and also the reasons that people may find it uh, disagreeable or might not like it. I think that actually using Yavne as a framing device was a little unfortunate in terms of the audience that Beinart might have been trying to reach because um, you know, one of the the chief concerns about a, a single state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is this idea that you could have um, Jewish Israelis living as a minority or a near minority or even even at parity um, in, in a one state system uh, with Palestinians. And would they be guaranteed equal rights given some of the political forces at work in Palestinian political life. And I want, I want to be clear that this is not to say that every single Palestinian is a violent anti-Semite. And a lot of def, uh, defenders and advocates of a one-state solution are very much correct in pointing out that people who frame it in that sense are making a very racist 
generalization, but the fact is you have uh, you have Hamas um, as a major force in Palestinian political life, which is an anti-Semitic institution with its own private militia and uh, re- you know responsible for for decades of terror attacks against Israelis. So that's something that's a concern. And here, Beinart frames it um, in comparison with the Avne, which, as you mentioned, uh, was set up after the the first Roman Jewish war, and it was set up kind of with the permission from uh, the Roman Emperor Vespasian, like the, that the the Jews had to appeal to now their benevolent overlords as a non-sovereign people um, as part of the, this this larger empire. Um, so, you know, framing it in a context where where very much the the Jews are disempowered and and have lost their their sovereign rights after being dealt a absolute military defeat to me is something that will evoke a lot of the concerns about the the physical safety of uh, Israeli Jews after a, a one state outcome absolutely and and I think you're certainly correct to point out that the Yavna analogy can be read in very different ways depending on what aspect of history uh, one wishes to focus on. But Evan, you should talk a little bit more about this notion of a one-state solution. Um, I hate using the term solution here, uh, really one-state one outcome, a, a single democratic binational state, because uh, you, of course, were the lead author, along with our colleague Shira Efron on an Israel Policy Forum report, looking at these different alternatives to two states. Uh, and and what you found is that uh, a single democratic binational state uh, is is not going to work nearly as well as some of its proponents claim. So this report, and I want to, of course, again, acknowledge Shira's work on this, you know, without which it wouldn't have been possible. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to join us for the podcast today. But um, the study that we did, the point in our study, I want to be clear before we get into it, wasn't to shoot down all of these other ideas. I think what Shira and I wrote up, um, you know, we have a chapter on each of these different outcomes, these different proposals for uh, different models for resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is to raise uh, questions, essentially, for proponents of these ideas to say, if you want this kind of outcome, how are you going to deal with these following issues? So the main ones that we came up with with a single democratic state um, are, first of all, what I what I spoke about is essentially integrating two um, unlike political systems, for lack of a better way to frame it. I mean, for all of its faults, um, and, you know, we can have a separate discussion about the occupied territories, but Israel within the green line is is a fairly well-functioning uh, liberal democracy with with fairly healthy institutions and, and the limited forms of Palestinian governance that you have in the West Bank and that you have in the Gaza Strip um, are very authoritarian. The political parties there... Um, you know, don't play by the same rules that um, parties in, again, in a liberal style democracy like Israel within the Green Line would. And so I think that there's, you know, a real problem with how you um, integrate those two kinds of uh, kinds of institutions. How do you get um, a free and fair election if you have a party that can field their own militia and maybe bully people at the polls? Um, or, you know, attack their, their political rivals. So that's something to take into consideration. Um, I mean, Beinart in his own essay mentions that he sees Ayman Oda as the perfect vehicle for bringing the one state 
outcome to Israelis and Palestinians and sort of being a bridge between Arab Israelis and Palestinians in the territories, why would Hamas and Fatah let uh, Oda upstage their position in Palestinian political life in one state? Um, you know, Oda's joint list and Khadash perfectly play by the rules of, of liberal democracy. It's it's a peaceful party the same way the Labour Party is a peaceful party or Meretz or Yeshatid and so on. Um, so, you know, that's something that I think is a real big concern. And, and, and by the way, also uh, important to point out in this context that Ayman, Oda and the joint list support two states, not one. So while uh, I think Ayman Oda is a fantastic figurehead for the notion of, of greater equality and ending discrimination inside of Israel between Jewish citizens of Israel and Palestinian citizens of Israel, that is not the same thing uh, as calling for a single state between the river and the sea, which is something that Oda himself does not support. Right. And, and even if he did, um, you know, you also have to look at what the opinion of, of the broader Arab Israeli electorate is. And there was a, a 2018 poll done by Dalia Shendlin and Khalil Shikaki that found that 82% of Arab Israelis support a two-state solution, which is almost double the rate at which Jewish Israelis support a two-state solution. Um, and, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons for that. I also want to point out that a lot of times when people argue with statistics, they, they show what people's first choice is. And that same poll did show that I think around like 60% or in the high 50s of percentage of Arab Israelis do support a one-state solution. But that's still a huge gap between uh, support for one state and support for two states. And I think it's notable that the uh, population that, that Beinart talks about as being the bridge to bring this one-state vision to Israelis and Palestinians is pretty enthusiastically supportive of two states as compared to all their neighbors, as compared to Israeli Jews, as compared to Palestinians in the territories. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And also, I'll just throw in there that um, I happened to have a conversation with an aide to a member of Knesset for uh, the Hadash party, which is one of the parties in the joint list. Uh, it's Ayman Oda's party. And uh, this person was actually really upset because they saw we had an Israel policy forum graphic that put like an asterisk next to the joint list support for two state solution and said one of the parties in the joint list, Balad, doesn't really support a two state solution. He said, yes, they do. I don't necessarily <laughs> agree with his his assessment, but I think that that kind of visceral reaction to even the mere suggestion that that one out of the four parties in the joint list doesn't support a two-state solution suggests that this isn't something that they're going to necessarily, uh, you know, give up right away. Right. I mean, there, there there are a lot of logistical factors involved, and we can go on these these ad nauseum. I mean, there's a question of integrating military, um, nuclear weapons. Um, you know, it's it's which is a thing to consider. Um, it might sound like nitpicking, but it, it's something out there. The, the last thing I think is um, is the economics of it, which is that there, there's a huge uh, welfare disparity and income disparity between Palestinians in the territories and Israelis in Israel. And you know the the per capita GDP in Israel is about forty thousand dollars, and in the West Bank it's like fourteen hundred dollars, and in Gaza it's nine hundred. Um, it's not to say that there isn't disparity. In, in every country, and certainly Israel, I think, ranks pretty highly in terms of the uh, income disparity present within Israel. But that, that's a huge gap when you talk about integrating two economies. And, and the uh, example and the model that we looked at for that was actually Germany, which some people could say is like the world's most successful one-state solution. 
you know, 30 years ago this year, you brought together West Germany and East Germany and made it one country. And of course, that occurred under the best possible conditions that had full international support. The people there wanted it. Um, but one of the big fallouts from that, uh, that transition was, uh, was the, these growing pains, uh, with the economy. They have what's called a solidarity tax in Germany. People actually have an added, uh, part of their tax that goes to fund the rehabilitation of East Germany because it was poorer than West Germany. But even then the income gap was like something like $5,000 in 1990, um, which was big enough to uh, create a situation where there still is an income gap. Uh, it, it's helped foster a lot of political radicalism in the former East Germany. There's been a, like 4 million people have 4 million out of, I think 16 million people in that area have migrated uh, West which is a huge number. Um, so then now take all of that and, you know, blow it up into the disparity present between Israelis and Palestinians. So it's, it's something to consider. There, there are legitimate reasons for supporting a single democratic state. And I don't think we can have this conversation in a vacuum outside of the context of annexation. Um, you know, in doing that study, uh, Shira and I spoke with the Palestinians in the West Bank, um, Palestinian thinkers in the diaspora, and, you know, I don't think you can tell people you have to wait forever and ever and just hold out hope for a two-state solution because it's going to come eventually. Uh, people have a breaking point. Um, but I think what needs to happen in this conversation is not a simple restating of the same uh, basic parameters. I thought Beinart's article was very thoughtful. I thought it was um, in places compelling. And, you know, I think he's faced a lot of unfair backlash. But, um, you know, the biggest... Uh, criticism I would throw out there, which I, I didn't put in the article, but it, it's something that I've been kind of dwelling on the past couple of days is I don't really think he said anything that new. I think the framing was new and important for the audience that he wants to reach. Um, but the basic principle of one man, one vote, merge the West Bank, Gaza and Israel into one state is not new. And a lot of his defenders simply restated that uh, formula. And I think that if you want to get this conversation moving, uh, a lot of those questions have to be answered because when we did this report, what we pulled together was the ideas and then said, here are the problems that stem from these ideas. But in very few places do we see uh, answers to the problems. Yeah, I think I think you're certainly right about um, it's important to come up with answers to overcome some of these of these hurdles, these these logistical hurdles um, that that are really, you know, they're not simply logistical hurdles. They uh, could and, and probably would very easily doom a single state. Um, but, you know, even taking a, a further step back, you know, you brought up the example of, of Germany and looking at the difficulties when you have such huge economic disparities. One of the things that German reunification had going for it is that there were not separate German nationalisms. There wasn't there wasn't really a, a, an East German nationalism and a West German nationalism, um, whereas in this case, you have two competing nationalisms, and that makes it a lot more difficult. One of the issues that I had with Beinart's piece is that he brings in examples from Northern Ireland or South Africa in trying to demonstrate that you that when when greater equality and power sharing is introduced, um, it leads to a more stable society and that is certainly true in some cases, but it's notable that neither of those cases involve competing national identities and, and competing national aspirations. And ideology is a really powerful thing. Um, obviously, 
racial identity is a powerful thing, as is as is religious identity, and, and that's what you have, uh, respectively, in South Africa and, and Northern Ireland examples. But uh, ideology itself is is a, a really powerful structural force in politics, and the notion that Israeli Jews are going to just drop the idea of Jewish or Israeli nationalism and the idea that Palestinians are just going to drop the idea of Palestinian nationalism and that they're all going to live together and, and subsume these national identities and national desires in order to live together in uh, one state with equality for all. I think it's a, I think it's a, in many ways, a, a, a lovely, a lovely idea in theory. Um, but the political science of this is that in practice, that sort of thing almost never works. And we've seen breakups in the 20th century of multi-ethnic and multinational states that were cobbled together kind of unnaturally. Um, you know, just just in, in uh, my lifetime and yours, very prominently, the USSR, Yugoslavia, um, Lebanon was, uh, was um, you know, sort of a, a, a held together for a while. Um, but uh, but uh, a disaster at the end of the day. And, and in Lebanon, we're not even talking about even as powerful competing uh, national identities at all. Um, so the, the evidence for, for the situation that exists now between Israelis and Palestinians ending peacefully and, and happily in a single state where uh, everybody has equality um, is, is pretty thin, if not outright non-existent. You know, it's not just a disaster when one of these countries implodes, um, you know, 30 years ago, there, there are trickle down effects that are still felt today. I mean, you mentioned the example of the, the breakup of the Soviet Union and in the past uh, week, there's been a flare up in fighting in the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, two of the former republics of the Soviet Union. It's just a war that has never ended since 1988. Um, and that was one of the, the, uh, conflict that was kind of at the fore during the, the time of the breakup of the Soviet Union. So you could have things start to uh, break down in a single state at one point and things keep on, you know, keep on slow burning for years and years and years. So it's not just about overcoming one hurdle and doing it at one time. It's about really, I think, taking in all of these, these issues holistically. Um, and, and yeah, I think the points that you brought up about, uh, the idea of competing nationalism, I think that there's, uh, a, a lack of understanding of the, the respect or at least the affiliation that both Israelis and Palestinians have for some of their institutions, whether it's in institutions of government or political parties or movements that weren't necessarily present in some of these other, um, and some of these other examples, um, you know, and you mentioned the the comparison with Germany that there weren't two competing German nationalism. So at the end of the day, when you had to have a one state solution for Germany, if, if we want to call it that, people in East Germany very readily and without resistance abandoned the East German army, for example. No, there wasn't really any resistance to people turning in their their guns. And, and that was that. I don't think necessarily if you had a one state solution, people in the who are serving in the IDF would just trade in their uniforms or people who are part of the Palestinian security forces or members of some of the uh, more militant movements in Hamas or, or Islamic Jihad are just going to say, OK, trading in my Kalashnikov and we're all going to 
serve side by side after uh, fighting and fighting and fighting for several decades. I, I don't think that you're going to necessarily get that same outcome. And if this is a train of thought that you want to explore, then I think that you need some answers to how are you going to deal with this? I don't think anyone is asking proponents of one state to say that their favored outcome is perfect because certainly a two state solution is not perfect. Um, but you know, there, there needs to be some sort of mechanism, uh, that's thought about at the very least, uh, before there's a broader conversation about this. Agreed. And, and so ultimately, I guess where I land on this is, you know, this is a this is a, a philosophical a philosophical argument. It's an argument about, you know, a, a, an idea versus an actual implementable plan, um, which is which is fine. Obviously, you know, anybody is is uh, is free to support or hold any uh, any idea that they like. Um, but I do think that in order to, as you pointed out earlier, in order to move the conversation, um, anybody who uh, who really supports a single state with equality for all between the river and the sea uh, certainly has to grapple with a lot of the practical implications and, and uh, practical hurdles. And um, until that happens, I think that, you know, this will, this will remain uh, a philosophical argument where people debate, which is, which is better, uh, which is better in theory. Um, but in practice and what we see on the ground, um, it's a, it's a very different conversation. Right. And before we close, I want to bring up what we are seeing on the ground, uh, because that's something that you spoke about in your column this week and your response to the initial Beinart essay, which is the idea that there is a one state reality. And I guess the next point that I want to make is more aimed at the American policy conversation and the American Jewish communal conversation around this, which is that, um, you know, look, I think we've made it clear in this conversation that we both disagree with Beinart, but uh, I think that a lot of the conversation has been uh, dumbed down, frankly, and, and not uh, has been a little unfair. And, you know, the reality is there is a one state reality uh, in Israel and the Palestinian territories right now. And there are people in Israel who have mainstreamed the idea of one state. It's just a very different kind of one state. It's a one state that's not democratic. And there are other reasons uh, you know, why that's not going to work. And that's another chapter in our study. Um, you know, if, if people are afraid of how um, Palestinians will respond to uh, sharing institutions with Israeli Jews who they've been fighting for decades and decades and decades, how do they expect Palestinians to respond to being told that they're going to be disenfranchised in perpetuity, not just the past 53 years? So, um you know, the, the one state solution has in many ways been mainstreamed. You know, anyone who thinks that Bennett is a mainstream figure or these days Netanyahu is a mainstream figure um, is, I think, tacitly acknowledging that one state is a mainstream idea. It's just, I think, in both directions, impracticable and, and in, in this case, morally reprehensible. Uh, agreed entirely. And I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. Right. It's one one state, a one state reality has been mainstreamed. But the reality of what one state looks like at the moment uh, is certainly very different from the one state um, that, that Beinart and, and other supporters of a, of a single democratic state envision. And, um, you know, moving moving from the one state reality to the one state vision, in my view, is, is going to be almost impossible. And so my preference is to figure out how to move from the current one state reality, which is an awful one, uh, back toward 
uh, a, a two-state uh, a two-state outcome. Um, but you know, we'll uh, we'll see we'll see what happens. <laughs> so we will link to the initial Beinart essay. He had an essay in Jewish Currents, and then one in the New York Times, which is kind of a condensed version of that, as well as Michael's column and my article on this. And we'll also put a link to the study that Shira and I wrote. So there's a lot of reading that you can do on this and, and, and definitely check the footnotes in the study and read the people who were citing also, because uh, I don't think there's any substitute in trying to understand these ideas, even if you disagree with them, then reading it straight from the horse's mouth. Absolutely. If you, if you've been, if you've been raging against Beinart on Twitter uh, and you haven't read his piece, um, then you're, you're not, you're not doing yourself or anyone any favors. People wouldn't really do that. Would they not read an article and then shout about it on Twitter? Oh no, people, people never just read the headlines of articles and then weigh in as if they've, as if they've read the article itself. That's, that's not a phenomenon that ever happens. Well, it's a good thing that that doesn't happen because it just drives home what a tragedy the Twitter hacking yesterday was that took so many accounts offline. Yes. A lot of, a lot of voices were, were canceled. So to speak. That's right, and, and I'll say, as somebody who, uh, as somebody who is uh, fortunate and privileged to have a blue check mark, uh, I really felt those those couple of hours where I was not able to tweet. Um, it's an outrage, I tell you, an outrage. Big, big outrage. Not as much of an outrage though as the mainstreaming of the term blue check mark when it's really a white check mark. <laughs> and I'll leave you all with that to ponder until we get to our next Israel Policy Pod episode. So, Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Robin. <laughs>